Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. We continue to find Paul uh, dealing with the Jews, as he began to do in chapter 2. Obviously, that is a relevant thing to do. It's always a relevant thing to do, in fact, but you can imagine how relevant it was in the age of the New Testament when so many Jews were coming into the church and they were adhering to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And so speaking to them still, he says, for what if some did not believe, he's speaking of the Jews, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how would, will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. And let us pray together. God, we thank you again for your word. Uh, we praise you that in all things it teaches us what you would have us to know, not necessarily always what we would want to know, or even what I would want to say, but what you would have us to know. And we pray that, again, just as the church found in the earliest days, as in the days of the Reformation, and for so many centuries after that, even to, to today, that the preaching of the word would be the great instrument by which you build up the church and you defeat your enemies, which is what you're doing here in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. What we find in this passage is Paul once again dealing with certain objections uh, that were being raised against his teaching, in this case by the Jews. And uh, it would seem that this is the way in which Paul proceeds throughout Romans and the best way to read it. He states his theme, I'm repeating myself, but again and again I, I keep having to stress this is the way that Romans unfolds. He states his theme, the gospel, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And then he tells us uh, what it is about the gospel that he's especially eager to tell us about in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. But then from there, having stated his theme, the gospel, and in particular, the power of God in the gospel to save through the righteousness that is revealed in Jesus Christ and received by faith, he uh, proceeds by answering a series of, of objections all the way throughout the letter. One objection after another. Uh, and so he's doing that here. He's done it before. If you go just beyond the present verses, you see in verse 9, he does it again. What then? Are we better than they? He answers another objection. Verse 27, he says, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? And so on. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? You see the pattern. He asks a question and he answers it. It's a question that people were asking in light of the teaching and the preaching of the gospel, which Paul uh, had been doing and was so eager to do. So more and more I'm realizing that is the way to read Romans. And that is especially what he's doing in this passage. He's answering a series of objections. And it really doesn't make sense unless you realize that's what he's doing. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. They're interesting objections and it turns out to be a very interesting passage. 
and somewhat perplexing one, though I hope you won't say that after the sermon. But before I go on to consider those three objections, I want to notice something about this, what I've been stressing in general, and it is the way in which the preacher, imagine Paul here being the preacher, but also myself, the way the preacher is open to being misunderstood. This is something that we find that even the Apostle Paul had to deal with. The preacher preaches his sermon. He's tried to be as clear as he possibly can, and yet he finds that his people have completely misunderstood him. In fact, uh, as Paul finds here, they take him to mean the exact opposite of what he set out to mean. And so Paul in his teaching and his preaching would either anticipate the objection to try to obviate it, almost as though he was having a conversation with his hearers, even though he was the only one speaking. He would state a point and say, now I know you're thinking this, and let me deal with that objection, and so on and so forth. Or, as he was doing here, he had done the teaching and the preaching And he was dealing with actual objections that had arisen in his hearers. You see that in verse 8. He says, um, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, something that we will see is the exact opposite of his teaching. And yet, uh, Paul was misunderstood to say, uh, again, not just what he didn't say, but the opposite. And this is the sort of thing that occurs throughout his letter. So much of what he writes is written in order to clear up the confusion, to answer the objections that his preaching uh, had aroused, and even, we find, as he does here, to put the troublemakers in their place, the blasphemers. There's really no avoiding this. As soon as we set out to preach and to teach the gospel, being misunderstood by the godly, and especially by our opponents. This is one of the unfortunate aspects of the fall. Even now, we... Read the scriptures and we take them to mean what they do not mean. And so one of the crucial tasks of preaching is we think of sitting under the preaching week by week and even twice on Sundays. One of the the crucial tasks of preaching is just to make things clear. It's to set forth uh, the, the sense of the words as Ezra did in his preaching. To clear away the confusion and the difficulties and the objections. To deal with false teaching. And so we find here again Paul dealing with false teaching, again, with respect to the doctrine of justification as the kernel of the gospel. And we notice three objections. Objection number one is found in verse three. He says, what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now, it's interesting, beginning in verse three, to notice the line of thought as it proceeds from verse two of of the of uh, chapter three. And frankly, what we have in these verses, verses three through eight, is a little strange. Uh, I even found uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he introduced this subject, to say uh, these are not just some of the most difficult verses in Romans. They're, in fact, some of the most difficult verses in the whole of the Bible. What is Paul actually saying here? Certainly, at least we can admit it's one of the the harder and the stranger passages in Romans. But you have to keep in mind what Paul has just been saying in chapter 2 up through the first two verses of uh, chapter 3. Namely, that with respect to the wrath of God, the revelation of the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that the Jew is no better off than the Gentile. Both together alike are condemned as sinners. 
But Paul had just said in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, having summed up that point in chapter 2, that that doesn't mean that the Jew has no advantage uh, in comparison to the Gentile. And we saw that last time. To the Jew was given or entrusted the oracles of God. And this was an immeasurable advantage, even if he failed to take advantage of this. But from this point, the advantage of the Jew possessing scripture while the Gentile did not, he anticipates the objection, which we actually dealt with last time, but which is stated here in verse 3, that if some do not believe these oracles, the scriptures, then they obviously do not carry with them much advantage at all. If in possessing them, they do not confer salvation. In other words, the objection was simply that unbelief makes void the word of God. If some do not believe it, then there really is no value in having it. That's the objection that they were making. Where is the prophet in possessing it? Now, why would anyone say this, especially the Jews, since they clearly did believe that there was a prophet and an advantage in possessing the word of God? Well, because they are objecting in saying this to what he's just said uh, in chapter 2, that possessing the word of God was not enough to save uh, someone. Because Paul says all are sinners. But if all are sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, if that is true, the Jew was saying, well, then that must negate the whole thing. There's obviously no use in having the scriptures at all. But Paul meets this objection by saying this in verse four. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. You see, he forcefully brushes aside Uh, their objection by asserting the truth of God. What God says is always true and it always carries with it an advantage in hearing it, even if every man is is a liar and an unbeliever. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the faithlessness of man, especially that of the Jew, does not negate the faithfulness of God. What an absurd suggestion. It never can. If man does not believe the word of God, That says nothing about the truth of it. And in order to support this assertion, he quotes Psalm 51 and verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and may be overcome when uh, and may overcome, excuse me, when you are judged. And the thought of this verse uh, in the course of Psalm 51 is simply that God is right to judge. Even his servants, even a man like David, he's right to afflict. This is something that David came to see and he even came to glory in. At first, it would seem perhaps he had resented it a little bit, that God would deal so harshly with his servant. And yet uh, in, in asserting, as David does there, that sin is against God and that sin is always against him. This is what proves that God is right in judging the sinner. God is justified in judging the sinner because sin is against him. And so far from negating the justice of God, man's sin is what establishes the rightness of God's justice. It's what justifies him and proves that he is right to judge. That you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. What is it that justifies him? It's the sinfulness of man against God. That's what proves that he's in the right. But this idea, you see, has a way of confirming what he's just said in verse four in the first part. Again, 
Let God be true, but every man a liar. He's answering the objection of verse 3. That the faithfulness of man, faithlessness of man negates the faithfulness of God. Let it never be. Even if all men do not believe, which he does not say, he only says that some do not. This does not violate the truth of God's word one whit. If anything, just as our sinfulness, as David says, throws greater light on the justice of God's judgment since sin is against him, we could reason in the same way that the faithlessness of man, far from negating the faithfulness of God, actually sheds greater light on it. It's the very thing that justifies and establishes the faithfulness of God. It's the thing that proves it, far from negating it. And thus the prophet in possessing the word of God is not seen in how we receive it, the faithfulness of man. It is seen solely in the faithfulness of God. That God, what God says is always true, though every man be a liar. That's how he answers the first objection. The second objection, uh, which we find in verses 5 and 7, he takes the thought of, uh, of Psalm 51 verse 4. And, and, and from that raises another objection. And this is where things start to get a little bit absurd. And the reasoning a little bit strained. But, but again, we have to realize that Paul was answering real objections. Paul himself was not speaking absurdities, but his opponents were, as we will see. The objection was this, again, verse 5 and verse 7. That if God's faithfulness and righteousness is seen against the backdrop of man's sin... In other words, if man's faithlessness and his sin is what uh, throws greater light or, or throws his uh, truthfulness into greater relief and makes it clearer to man, then the question becomes next, is not God then unjust to still inflict wrath? If my sin magnifies the justice of God and my faithlessness magnifies the faithfulness of God, why does God still judge? That's the next question. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, Paul says, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. Where is the justice in judging the sinner when sin is that which makes him to appear more glorious? If man's sin and unfaithfulness only magnifies God's truth and justice, why is man still judged for his sin? Why does God still inflict wrath? He states it again in verse 7. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? If God is glorified by my sin, which he is, why does he fault me for my sin? That's the thought. Do you realize that what's being called into question here is the justice of God? They were calling into question the justice of God's judgment, if indeed the prior assertion was true, that our sin does glorify God, and it magnifies the attributes of his truth and his justice. Here we think of the scribes and the Pharisees trying to trap our Lord in his words, and that's what the Jews were doing here. They were saying, if such and such is true as you claim, then is it not true that this is also true? Again, in order to disprove his assertion, and to trap him in his words. Again, just as they did to Jesus. But we find the answer of Paul in verse 6. To the second objection. He says, certainly not. For how then will God judge the world? And you see, he begins in the same way that he began in verse 4. Which is simply 
uh, to deny forcefully. Certainly not. And that is because, he says, very simply, that there could be then no justice. God could not judge the world if what you're saying is true. If because sin magnifies the glory of God, then God would be wrong to judge the sinner. If that were true, then Paul says there could be no judgment. But even the Jew was not prepared to go this far. For the Jew was eager to assert, though he asserted always his immunity with respect to the wrath of God. He was very eager to assert that the wrath of God was and would be revealed against the sinfulness of the Gentiles. And that that wrath would become especially clear at the final judgment. And so what Paul says is that you've proved too much. You've negated entirely the whole concept, not just with respect to yourself, but all men of the judgment of God. If that is so, Paul says, then there will be no judgment at all. The position immediately appears to be absurd. But then finally, in verse eight, we have the third objection, pushing things to their final absurdity. And again, it wasn't he who was doing this. It was they thinking at last that they had trapped him. And so Paul says in verse 8, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. In other words, why not go this far? Not only is there no judgment for sin because sin glorifies God, but it's actually better to sin because sin glorifies God. And that this wasn't just some absurdity that Paul, again, was anticipating. He was, he was uh, answering an actual objection against his teaching. His legalist opponents were accusing him of teaching what we call the antinomian heresy. That if my sin is what throws God's justice and his truth into greater relief, it is actually better to sin. The more I sin, the more glory God gets. That is what they slanderously claimed that he taught, these legalists. Or at least what they claim that his teaching led to. If sin magnifies the justice of God and the glory of God, are we not then better off sinning? This is uh, this resembles very clearly what we find him later dealing with in chapter six, verse one. Let us sin that grace may abound. It's the same teaching. Uh, Only it has with respect to grace. This has respect to justice. So it's a little bit different. Well, the answer, I've already read it, but it is just simply their condemnation is just. We find in every objection a very simple answer. Their condemnation is just. And this is the simplest by far. It's all he says. Foolish men, what have we, what, what have we apostles to do with them? It's plain as day, Paul is saying, that such men, by the mere suggestion, Deserve to be condemned. So that's the teaching in essence. Uh, As I say, it's a little bit difficult. It's a little bit strained. Uh, I even find that the commentators are in some difficulty over it. But I hope more or less uh, that that has been clear. Uh, But I think it is better to take this teaching then and to apply it to ourselves. And here I have four points of application, uh, which hopefully will bring home the truths of of these verses uh, even more clearly home. And the first thing, I've referenced this several times, and it ought to be clear by now, and that is the ease with which Paul brushes aside each objection. Too easy, perhaps, some might say. But there's an important lesson here uh, that can be discerned in dealing with our opponents and the opponents of the gospel. You see, there are times when we're presenting the truth, 
And it becomes clear that our opponents are not interested in listening. This is something Paul had to deal with. It's clear uh, as well that Jesus had to deal with this. The, the, The scribes and the Pharisees trying to trap him in his words. They didn't actually want to hear what he had to say. They were only listening and posing questions to try to disprove him. And so as they're listening, you can tell they're just trying to think of the next objection. Perhaps you can think of times that you've been sharing the gospel and you've encountered this. Now, the question is, what should you do in such a situation? As soon as you realize they're not really interested in being won over, they're interested in winning the argument. Well, the common tendency, especially for Reformed Christians, is to say, now, I know better than this man. I can win the argument. I am trained in the scriptures. I'm trained in apologetics. Many of you are. If he just keeps listening and if I just keep reasoning out the point, I will win the day. The common tendency is to try to win the argument or to outsmart our opponents or else we feel that we are defeated and that our position can't really stand up against the attacks of our opponents. But that is not what we find the Apostle Paul doing here. Do you notice his method? It's stated first in verse 4, let God be true though every man a liar. That immediately establishes the way in which he is prepared to deal with his opponents. He already knows he's in the right because he stands with God. And from this, he just states the truth of God's word. Though men do not accept it. Each time he does that, he states the truth of God's word. He doesn't set out to prove it. He just states it. And from this, we can derive the principle that all that we need to do ever really, but especially in those situations, is the truth of God's word. That's all we need to contend with error in any situation. It needs to be asserted. It needs to be believed. But it does not need to be Uh, defended with clever arguments, which is why, as an aside, you will almost never see me engaging in apologetics because the task of preaching is not apologetics. My only interest, as with Paul, is with God's word and in asserting that it is true because it is. What is at stake, you see, in Paul's argument is the truth and the justice of God. And these are things... Listen carefully. These are things that cannot be proved, nor can they be disproved, the truth and the justice of God. And the reason I say this is because you do not arrive at these truths through a process of reason or debate. And so you must never debate them. It is always wrong to debate the justice and the truth of God, always. These are rather truths that are uh, to be asserted and believed, as I said, because they belong in the realm of revelation. These are things which God has revealed about himself to us, not for us to debate, you see, but for us to believe and then to proclaim. These are things which belong in the realm of the ultimate, not the relative. These are things which are not subject to man. Man is not the arbiter of these truths. I don't care one whit what the philosopher has to say about the justice of God. I'm not interested in listening to him. I am merely interested, you see, in knowing what God has to say about his own justice. And then it is my task as a Christian to believe that, accept it, and then to proclaim it. These are things which belong to God and which he has revealed to us. Listen to John Murray. He says it is significant. He's speaking of one of the three uh, answers to the objections, but it applies to all three. And he's answering the question, why is he so brief? Why doesn't he engage them a little more? 
He says it's significant that Paul has no lengthy refutation. The apostle's answer in this case illustrates what must always be true when we're dealing with the ultimate facts of revelation. These facts are ultimate and argument must be content with categorical affirmation. The answer to objections is proclamation. Again, what he's saying is all that I'm saying. Rather than defending the truth and engaging in arguments, you simply assert it. Let God be true, though every man is a liar. Do you understand the confidence of the Christian position? If ever you engage in apologetics, let it be from that standpoint. But the second lesson is found in the way he represents his opponents. Not just let every man be a liar, that's one thing. But then in verse four or verse five, excuse me, you have this little phrase in parentheses which is significant. I speak as a man. The argument stated, or, or, or uh, the argument stated just before that, is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. That argument is human reasoning, he's saying. And what is worse, it is blasphemous, and it cannot be seriously entertained by any serious Christian. And so Paul only states it, as with the others, for the sake of argument. As he makes clear by saying, I speak as a man. These are not my ideas. These are just the ideas of my opponent. And I would never think to even utter them. But for the fact that they were being uttered by others. And so here's just human reasoning. I'm speaking as a man. This is what men are saying. But it doesn't belong on a par, you see, he says, with God's truth. It cannot stand against it. One simple declaration of God's truth demolishes the position of man completely. But here is, uh, let me go a little further with this thought. Here is the human way of thinking and the human way of speaking. The blasphemous tendency which men are apt to do, calling into question the justice of God. Here is human folly, which is called reason. It's called philosophy at its finest. Yes, every time we do this, every time we debate and we speculate and we question and we speak angrily either about or with God concerning his justice, what we're doing is we are engaging in the speech of men rather than believing the revelation and the truth of God's word. And not just as men, but if you really understand what Paul is saying here, madmen at that, because it, it isn't even good reasoning. It isn't good philosophy. It ignores important biblical considerations. And so, in reality, to reason like this, to become frustrated with your circumstances, and perhaps even the way God is dealing with you, calling into question the justice of God is always and entirely beneath the Christian position. It is not the position of faith. It is the position of reason and of man. And so let me say categorically, we must never call into question the justice of God, beloved. Never. And one of the reasons we, we never should is not only because it is in itself blasphemous and unbelieving, but because just as soon as we do so, we begin to engage in the very kinds of absurdities that we find here. Such as, well, if my sin is the thing that magnifies the justice of God, maybe there is no justice. Maybe God is wrong to judge me. Or even worse... If by my sin God gets the glory, maybe I am better off sinning. Every time you call into question his justice, well, you've blasphemed off the, off the bat. But then you begin to go down this path of terrible reasoning, 
Well, if we were ever to speak or entertain such a position, let us do so as Paul does here. I speak as a man. In other words, I'm just setting it forth in order to demolish it utterly by God's word and forcefully cast it aside. What does he say? Certainly not. That's the next phrase. I speak as a man. Certainly not. But then a third point of application I would notice how the preaching of the gospel tends to bring this out of people. These kinds of objections and these kinds of notions. It brings it out of us in our more fleshly outlook and tendencies. In presenting the full gospel, which includes, we notice, even the wrath of God and the total sinfulness of man, which in this, uh, at this point they were objecting to. We find in our sinful minds such objections springing up. These are not just the objections of the Jews These are our own objections. These are the objections that always spring up. You can count on it. Which is why the arguments that we find in Romans are always relevant. You find Paul not only dealing with them here, but coming back to them in chapter 3, verse 31, for instance. He says, do we then, it's the exact same thing. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You people who are saying that we're Overturning the law of God. Jesus had to deal with the same thing. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. And yet it seems that's always the accusation against the gospel. It always brings this out. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And yet there were some who were saying this. In a sense, every time you present these things... You have to remind people what you're not saying. Because the tendency will always be to have these same thoughts and these same objections. In other words, what we find in this passage and in these other passages I just quoted is the way in which the preaching of the gospel always awakens the legalists in our hearts. Or perhaps the preaching of the gospel reveals that we're really antinomians at heart. And so we're constantly dealing with this. And as I say, the relevance of Scripture in these, in, in these regards is, is established for all time. And so as a final point of application, we must evaluate ourselves. We must evaluate our own understanding and response to the gospel week by week. What is it that the preaching of the gospel and even the preaching of the wrath of God and the universal sinfulness of man, which has been our theme as part of the broader preaching of the gospel, what does that awaken in you? With respect to your understanding of God and your understanding of his justice. And ultimately your understanding of how it is that he proposes to save the sinner who is subject to his wrath. And then having saved him, what it is he is calling him to do. Do you find that it, that it awakens in you the legalistic tendency which seeks to object to the grace of God? The free grace of God at every turn. You, you saw in Sunday school, those of you who were there, that's the Roman Catholic objection every time. You can't preach that. You can't possibly preach that. If you do, and you know even John Wesley did this, so the Arminian error as well. If you do, you're telling men they can live however they please. That always seems to be the objection. That's the objection of the legalist. But there's also the opposite. The antinomian error in response to the freeness and the fullness of the grace of God. 
Well, then I think if at least implicitly deep down in my heart, it really doesn't matter how I live or how much I sin, God will forgive me anyways. Both errors are constantly confronting the church. And the reality, beloved, if we believe the gospel as Paul does, is that we stand on a razor's edge with terrible heresies on both sides, that of antinomianism, that of legalism. And so my admonition to you as we are considering, especially in Romans, the gospel week by week, is not simply uh, to, to treat the objectors as though these are people who lived in Paul's day or these are people in the other churches, but to realize you as men have the very same heart as they and that the same errors uh, or, or that you are capable of the very same errors every time you hear these truths. We must be very careful. The question is that we must constantly ask ourselves is what of the errors? Have we, like Paul, withstood them and brushed them aside forcefully and totally as dreadful heresies? Have we rejected them completely? Certainly not, we say, every time the suggestion is even, uh, is even made. Or do we find uh, that perhaps they still, in some measure, have a foothold in our hearts, one way or the other? You see, Paul is saying, God forbid such heresies even be uttered, let alone entertained and believed. And if ever he does utter them, it's only in order to demonstrate their utter folly. And yet I would say at the same time that these things are terribly subtle. In fact, one of the amazing and perplexing things that we find in the Christian life is that we as Christians, which means we as sinners, are capable of both errors at the same time. It's possible to be a legalist and an antinomian in the same day and the same moment. They are terribly subtle. They have a way of creeping in. And in many ways, the study of the Protestant church ever since the Reformation has just been a continual study of the church responding to one error or the other. We have to realize where we stand. We're not on an island in history. We're dealing with the same errors. Of course, let us be honest, the spirit of the day is that of antinomianism. We recognize that. And yet, do we realize that we're given uh, to the same sins? And how do we respond to that sin? Do we do so by charging the antinomians as the legalists did? My admonition again is we must be very careful. We must hold fast and adhere to the one and the only gospel, which is what Paul did, and make that our constant and continual study all of our lives, and then constantly examine our position in response to the gospel week by week, asking ourselves the question, what, it is, what is it that I'm adhering to? What is it that the gospel awakens in me? Or perhaps this, and I think this is the way to be sure, to consider what it is you believe demonstrates the righteousness and the justice and the truth of God. It's interesting to notice Paul saying in verse 5, and this is familiar language if you're familiar with Romans, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say is God unjust who inflicts wrath? They were saying, and this is undoubtedly true, but I wonder if this is where you want to camp out. They were saying, our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. Again, just to try to trap Paul. So is it your sin, as some were foolishly saying, that demonstrates the righteousness of God? Or is it, as Paul later says, the cross of Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 3. 
But now the righteousness of God, verse 21, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. That is the Christian position, beloved. When we think of it, when we think of what it is that demonstrates God's righteousness, that will tell you what you place a premium on. Or we could reverse uh, that way of putting it. What it is you put a premium on, premium on will tell you how you answer the question. Is it man? Do we evaluate our position in terms of ourselves and what we are and what we do? Or is it God and his son and his righteousness revealed at the cross? And the way in which what he has done at the cross demonstrates and reveals us to us in a way that saves us guilty sinners, though we are so that we're able, like Paul, to say, going back to his original assertion, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save to all who believe for in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is the Christian position. That's the gospel that we must adhere to week by week, though we have many opponents, even at times ourselves and our own sinful hearts. Let us be those who ever and always adhere and hold fast to the cross of Christ, beloved. Amen. And let us come now to the table.